I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. A big welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the October 24th, 2022 issue. This is Season 3, Episode 3. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and highlights new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time each week to talk about what's new, but we'll also reflect very carefully about how all this new information ties in with what we've come to learn in the past. I'll use various studies as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. Evidence-based hair was produced for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast should be used for educational purposes only and not a substitute for medical advice. The fourth Monday of each month is dedicated to a variety of topics, and today I'll be talking about six studies from the past few months in the area of hair loss. We'll talk about resilience in alopecia areata. Resilience is defined as the ability of an individual, when confronted with a stressful environment or a stressful life event, to still maintain good quality of life. In other words, to bounce back in some way and move forward despite the ongoing challenges. And resilience is being studied in many aspects of medicine. It hasn't received a lot of attention in hair loss, but a very nice study addresses resilience in alopecia areata. Then we'll talk about repigmentation of the hair as a sign of lentigo maligna, a type of malignant melanoma. We all look forward to hair repigmenting whether it's by coloring it with dyes or other means. We talked several months ago about repigmentation of the frontal hairline and frontal fibrosing alopecia. But sometimes repigmentation is not a good sign, and we'll look at some studies regarding repigmentation as a sign of melanoma. Then we'll talk about the reliability of TikTok. How good are hair loss-related videos on TikTok? We'll see that... Unfortunately, they're not very reliable, and a very good study assesses this. Then we'll talk about sebaceous gland atrophy and seborrheic dermatitis. Sebaceous gland atrophy, or this diminution in size of the sebaceous glands, is often seen in psoriasis. When we submit biopsies for hair loss and the pathologist says, you know, I see sebaceous gland atrophy, I don't see any scarring alopecia, Sebaceous gland atrophy, Jeff, can be seen in psoriasis, so maybe there's features of psoriasis here. And so often we equate sebaceous gland atrophy with possible psoriasis. But a new study by Dr. Goldberg points out that maybe we need to think a little more carefully that maybe other inflammatory conditions like seborrheic dermatitis have sebaceous gland atrophy. And then we'll talk about a very nice study looking at hair loss supplements and hair growth. Do hair loss supplements really help patients with androgenetic hair loss? When you have androgenetic hair loss and you have low iron, 
Is fixing that low iron going to have a huge effect? Is fixing the low zinc going to have a huge effect? Effect Is fixing the low vitamin D going to have a huge effect? Well, this study suggests no. And I think this is a really helpful study because it reminds us that focus on supplements, 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 and focus on fixing these lab values, especially borderline lab values, it's probably not the way to go. But supplements are a huge industry. Patients love supplements. Physicians love to recommend supplements because it seems like a reasonable thing to do. This study reminds us, as have many studies in the past, that probably these supplements don't do much for most people. Of course, if you have a ferritin of two, fixing the iron probably does help, but for most patients, not a huge effect. Then we'll talk about a very interesting study and a very important study in our ongoing wonderful epidemiologic studies tying in the cosmetic products we use with the negative effects they have on our body. Lots of studies suggest that hair products can increase the risk of certain diseases like cancer. And today we'll look at a very important study looking at the possibility that hair straighteners contribute to uterine cancer which includes endometrial cancer. The references for all of these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin then by talking about resilience and resilience in alopecia areata. Resilience is the ability of an individual to bounce back when they're faced with a stressful life event or a stressful situation. We know that there are some patients that have hair loss that are devastated, that feeling persists. In other patients, there is a similar devastation, and some patients are able to bounce back quicker than others. There are many reasons why this can occur, but one reason that has been proposed in the literature is the resilience that a patient has. The reason this study is so important and the reason resilience literature is so important is that resilience can be taught, that patients can become more resilient. And resilience has been studied a lot in the oncology field and in other areas where there are stressful life events and traumatic events. And resilience training helps patients develop skills that allow them to cope better and and bounce back. And improve their quality of life. It doesn't mean that the stressful event is gone. It doesn't mean that it doesn't affect them in some ways, that they don't feel loss or sadness, but resilience allows patients to move forward with some good quality of life that uh, is allowing them to go through their everyday with, with a more positive outlook. So let's take a look at hair loss and resilience. Hair loss is certainly one of these stressful life events that can impact the way we feel and impact our quality of life. And it has been proposed, as I mentioned, that the resilience of a patient could be one reason why some patients respond quicker, bounce back quicker, maintain good quality of life, despite significant hair loss, whereas other patients do not. So a new study aimed to characterize resilience 
in alopecia areata and to study whether there's a correlation between how resilient a patient is and the stress that they perceive. So the authors used three validated questionnaires to assess resilience, stress, and patient-reported symptoms. And the three questionnaires included the Brief Resilient Coping Scale, the Perceived Stress Scale, and the Alopecia Areata Symptom Impact Scale. So there are these questionnaires that you can print out, give to patients, to allow the clinician to determine how resilient might this patient be? What is the perceived stress of the patient in front of me? And what is the impact of alopecia areata for this patient in front of me? So the brief resilience coping scale is a validated tool that, ev that evaluates an individual's resilience and their tendency to cope with stress. It evaluates resilience on a five-point scale, and patients answer these four questions, and they describe whether the sentence does not describe them at all, whether it describes them not very well, whether they're neutral, whether it indeed describes them, or whether it describes them very well. So on a scale to one to five, patients answer these questions. I look for creative ways to alter difficult situations. Regardless of what happens to me, I believe I can control my reaction to it. I believe I can grow in positive ways by dealing with difficult situations. And four, I actively look for ways to replace the losses I encounter in life. So the answers to these four questions allows a clinician to have some idea of the inherent resilience that patient has at the present time. Of course, resilience can be taught. And so these scores may improve over time or possibly decrease over time in some cases, but they are dynamic rather than static. But it is possible to get some sense of a patient's resilience. The authors also used this perceived stress scale. It's also a validated measurement which assesses an individual's perception of stress in any given situation. And it's a scale from zero to four and patients look at these statements and they answer never, almost, almost never, sometimes, fairly often, or very often. And the questions include, how often have you been upset in the last month because something happened unexpectedly? In the last month, how often have you felt you're unable to control important things in your life? How often have you felt nervous or stressed? In the last month, how often have you felt confident about your ability to handle your personal problems? How often have you felt things were going your way? How often could you not cope with all the things you had to do? How often have you been able to control irritations in your life? How often have you felt you were on top of things? How often have you been angered because things have been outside your control? How often have you felt difficulties were piling up so high you couldn't overcome them? And so that's the perceived stress scale, or PSS, and the authors evaluated the perceived stress scale in, in patients. And the alopecia areata impact scale is also another one of these validated questionnaires, which is designed to document patients' perceived alopecia areata symptom severity and how it impacts their functioning. And so on a scale of 0 to 10, patients rate how much scalp hair loss they have, body loss, tingling or numbness, itchy skin, 
feeling anxious or worried, feeling sad, how much alopecia interferes with work, enjoyment of life, interactions with others, daily activities, sexual relationships, and quality of life. And so a score is given. And so all patients had these three scores on resilience, perceived stress, and impact. So there were 141 participants in this study. 73.8% were women, 70% were Caucasian, and they were of various degrees of hair loss. About a third had between 0 to 25% of scalp involved by alopecia areata. About a third had 76 to 100% involved, so more advanced alopecia areata, and about a third were in between. Overall, the participants were found to have moderate stress and resilience, and the alopecia areata symptoms impacted various domains on psychological functioning by that AA severity index. But here's the key two points. Symptom impact was directly correlated with perceived stress. So patients with greater symptom impact tended to have greater stress. So the greater the amount of hair loss, the greater it interferes with work, the greater it interferes with personal relationships, the more stress that alopecia areata the patient will have. But the key point here is that resilience was inversely correlated with perceived stress. In other words, patients with greater resilience tended to have lower perceived stress. And so I think that's really, really important. This is really one of its kind in our alopecia areata literature and in our hair loss literature, understanding this concept of resilience. And resilience is so much a part of other parts of medicine, but it hasn't found its way to careful study like this in alopecia areata, in androgenetic hair loss, in scarring alopecia, in trichotillomania, in you name it. So greater resilience is associated with an improvement in how patients perceive stress regardless of the severity of a patient's hair loss. And so I think that's really, really important. What's also so important is that resilience can be taught. Patients with low resilience can be taught to improve their resilience so their resilience is higher. And the, the importance of that is that if we can improve a patient's resilience, we can decrease their stress theoretically, and we can improve the quality of life. We can improve the, uh, the, the enjoyment that they have with all of their daily activities and their interpersonal relationships. So that's really important. We have strategies to improve the way patients feel. Of course, we want to work on other strategies to improve how we regrow hair, but we have an ability to improve the way patients feel about their hair loss by improving resilience. There is resilience training that goes on in multiple aspects of the world. In medicine, in certain traumatic situations, uh, diagnoses of cancer, coping with cancer, in other fields of medicine with very stressful diagnoses, in other parts of psychology with interpersonal challenges and other very, very stressful life events. Resilience training allows patients to improve the quality of life by reducing stress. 
and it focuses on four areas, including emotional, mental, physical, spiritual. Training can improve resilience, and that's really the key here. Resilience training helps patients identify ways that they can respond positively to various pressures. Patients can gain tips and strategies to develop within his or her own natural strength. They can learn ways to identify opportunities. Despite all these challenges, patients can come to see that there may be opportunities for personal growth, opportunities for other growth and other aspects of their life. They can develop creativity. They can develop problem-solving skills. They can learn relaxation. And all of these improve resilience to deal with some pretty tough situations. And so in some ways, resilience training helps patients have a more positive outlook in, in the face of a pretty tough situation. And it teaches better and more durable ways of coping. And so understanding all the factors that affect resilience has important clinical implications and can represent a guiding principle for designing new psychological interventions that help patients uh, recover quicker, improve quality of life. And this is such a valuable area because we know hair loss impacts patients tremendously. There is a dramatic shortage of specialists and resources around the world to help patients cope with hair loss better. There's such a shortage, and there's such a paucity of resources available that we almost don't talk about it because we are so limited. When I have patients that are having a lot of challenges with their hair loss, they're devastated, it is very difficult sometimes to refer those patients to colleagues, psychologists, psychiatrists. Now, sometimes we can, and of course we work hard to do so, but there's waiting lists, there's a limited amount of training sometimes in the psychology world and the psychiatry world with specifically hair loss issues. Some of, the some of the patients who are dealing with loss of hair and the psychological ramifications from loss of hair are referred to some wonderful specialists, but perhaps the specialist deals with other parts of body um, disfigurement. And yes, the principles are similar, but the principles are not identical. An expert that helps patients deal with a loss of a limb or a loss of an eye or a loss of hearing has a lot of wonderful skills, but it's not the same as dealing with loss of hair. There's really a need to develop resources in our hair loss community to help patients cope. And one of the reasons patients turn online to various support groups and other methods is that for some patients, those resources are very valuable to help patients cope, to help patients uh, develop new skills, and to help improve resilience in some ways. But I think this was a really important study. I think that one of the challenges in these areas of study is our psychology colleagues, so if you talk to psychologists and psychology researchers, they're very familiar with all these tools to measure stress, resilience, to measure 
anxiety, depression, to measure all of these parameters, it's first nature to them. It's not first nature to us in the hair loss world. How in the world do we measure resilience? How in the world do we measure perceived stress? Yes, we can ask patients, are you stressed? But that's not a validated method. And so the reason I like this study so much is it really reminds us of these tools that are there and it goes about using them in such a wonderfully designed way and gives us such important information and provides us in the end with hope that we have these resources available to us to help patients improve resilience. And by doing so, our patients can get a lot more out of life and enjoy life a lot more, even if we don't change their hair density one bit. Of course, the ongoing effort is to make sure we have new treatments, new skills, new resources, new research that helps us improve hair density and improve the ability to treat these conditions. But we need to work on these in parallel. Another study that I'd like to talk about today looks at repigmentation of scalp hair. Several months ago, we talked about a patient with gray hair that had a darkening of the frontal hairline. And we talked that that can sometimes be a sign of frontal fibrosing alopecia. Today, we're going to talk about some patients that had gray hair and developed patches of brown-black hair, repigmentation. And that was not a good sign. It was a sign of malignant melanoma. Repigmentation of scalp hair in this manner in patchy areas can be a sign of lentigo maligna, a type of melanoma, slow-growing melanoma, especially in uh, individuals that are slightly older. And so Gressler and colleagues published this very nice case study of a patient that had a repigmentation of hair associated with lentigo maligna. So lentigo maligna is a type of melanoma, a melanoma in situ. It happens on chronically sun-damaged skin. And so you can imagine that in order to develop chronic sun-damaged skin, you need to have years and years and years of sun exposure. And so lentigo maligna doesn't tend to happen in 20-year-olds. It tends to happen in 60, 70, 80, and 90-year-olds. They're slow growing, but they can become quite extensive if they're untreated. And sometimes the tumor involves hair follicles. And these melanoma cells can trigger the hair follicle to pigment. So the patient in this Gresler study was an 85-year-old man with a history of leukemia, and he sought medical attention because he had a change in the color of his hair in the right parietal scalp. His prior history included melanoma in situ, non-melanoma skin cancer as well, and he had a darkening of hair in the right scalp for several months. When the scalp was examined, there was this area of growing 4.5 by 3 centimeter patch of brown hair. And underneath it was this 0.5 centimeter brown macule. A shave biopsy was performed, and that brown macule was a melanoma in situ or lentigo maligna. And the patient underwent surgery to excise it. So the authors proposed that repigmentation in previous gray hair or white hair should raise suspicion from a lentigo maligna. So usually this is a patch of gray or brown hair, brown or black hair, rather than the entire scalp being repigmented. So these are patches of brown hair. 
And there's many studies in the literature, starting first with a lot of studies that suggested this repigmentation of patches is a sign of lentigo maligna in women, but it came to be realized that it's a sign of lentigo maligna sometimes in males. A very nice study in JADCASE reports in 2019 by Lackey and colleagues is free online, and it's titled Repigmentation of Gray Hairs with Lentigo Maligna and a Response to Topical Amiquimod. And I'd like to review this study as well because it's a really nice study case report of, again, repigmentation in the setting of Lentigo Maligna and a dramatic response to treatment with Amiquimod topical treatment. So in 2019, Lackey and colleagues published this nice case report of an 86-year-old individual referred for a patch of brown-black pigmentation, quite large, 15 centimeters by 8 centimeters. And it was in the vertex and the upper occipital scalp, so at the back. And the lesion included repigmenting black hairs, just like the Gressler study. And it was confirmed to be lentigo maligna. And so here's a picture of that gray, black, brown discoloration of the scalp with this repigmentation of hairs. And so the patient was given options for surgery or radiation. This is a relatively large area, so it would involve a large surgery. The patient declined surgery and declined radiation, but decided to proceed with treatment with topical amiquimod cream applied six times a week for 12 weeks. And omiquimod activates the immune system to hopefully induce tremendous inflammation in the area so that the cancer cells can be killed. When omiquimod is used in the setting of lentigo maligna or other non-melanoma skin cancers, we hope that the patient has this exuberant inflammatory response We don't want them to have such an exuberant inflammatory response that they're bleeding and and draining pus and, 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 and things on a pillow. But we certainly want an exuberant inflammatory response to tell us that, yes, the immune system recognizes these cancer cells and is hopefully going about killing it. And so this patient had an exuberant inflammatory reaction. On account of that, cleared the lentigo maligna and I'd like to show you some pictures from that Lackey study. And so treatment was continued for an additional four months after that initial five months, and the result was clearance. And so here's a picture of the patient's top of the scalp showing very good response and disappearance of that brown-black color. And here's a picture of the vertex where you can no longer appreciate that brown-black color just a dramatic, dramatic response to a micromod in this patient with lentigo maligna. Free, online, do check it out. JAD Case Reports 2019, Lackey and colleagues. So we move on now to a really nice study by Nguyen and colleagues in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology in August, titled Characterizing and Assessing the Reliability of TikTok's most viewed alopecia-related videos. TikTok has 1 billion active monthly users, and TikTok is used to disseminate a lot of educational information. How good is that educational information for hair loss? Well, 
Newman and colleagues set out to answer that question. And I really like this study. One of the ways to assess the reliability of consumer health information, either written or video, is this questionnaire called the DISCERN questionnaire. It was developed in the late 1980s. And it's used to assess how reliable is this information that's being put out there to consumers. So it's a 16-item questionnaire that assesses various items on a scale of 1 to 5, with 1 being poor and 5 being excellent. And there's 16 items that an evaluator goes through and ticks off 1 to 5. Item 1, is that a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5? Let's give it a 5. Item 2, is that a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5? Ah, let's give it a 4. So it's a, it's a validated questionnaire to assess reliability of information. So the authors evaluated the reliability of the most viewed TikTok videos on alopecia areata, traction alopecia, trichotillomania, female and male pattern hair loss, telogen effluvium, frontal fibrosing alopecia. And so the authors sat down on February 17th, 2022, and they looked at 25 of the most popular videos in each category. And in the end, they included 183 videos in their assessment and evaluation of the DISCERN score. And these 183 videos had 101 million views. So the hope is, with 183 videos and 101 million views, that hopefully there's some pretty good information being put out there that's super reliable. We'll come to see that that's not quite the case. So 54.6% of the videos were related, were related to patient personal experience. So patients were putting out information. What is it like to have genetic hair loss? What is it like to have scarring alopecia, trichotillomania? What is it like to have alopecia areata? 33% were educational. Of the educational videos, 60 of them, 70% discussed treatments, 58% discussed the cause or etiology of hair loss, 15% discussed diagnosis, and 8% discussed nutrition. Who's making these videos that 101 million downloads are occurring? Well, 64.5% are created by patients. 10% by dermatologists, 8.7% by proclaimed hair experts, self-proclaimed hair experts. And that's a term they use in the study. And those are individuals that sit down at a computer or a personal phone and click record and say, I'm James McGregor and I'm a hair loss expert. That's what a self-proclaimed hair expert is. 4.4% of the videos were made by other health care practitioners like physician assistants, nurse practitioners, nurses. 4% were, were barbers and hairstylists. 3% were non-dermatologists, physicians. 2.2% of these educational videos were made by dermatology residents. And 1.1% were made by trichologists. So how reliable are these videos? Well, of these educational videos, the authors then calculated the DISCERN score and gave it a score from 1 to 5 in total. So they sat down with all these videos, 183 of them, and they gave them a score on all these 16 items. So they, each 183 videos, they were given a score. A video was marked reliable 
if it didn't contain any information that conflicted with evidence-based guidelines. Two independent raters assessed and calculated the discern score. One of the study researchers sat down, watched these 183 videos, and with their notebook, clipboard, or computer, however they want to do it, they gave each of these videos a score, and the other researcher sat down at their computer and watched these 183 videos and gave them a score independently. So in general, all the videos posted by physicians were considered reliable, and about 56% of videos posted by non-physicians were considered reliable. The reliability of videos from patients was about 50%. The reliability of patients from barbers and hairstylists was about 67%. The discern score was highest for board-certified dermatologists, and it was lower for all other groups, including patients, barbers, hairstylists, non-dermatologists, trichologists. The interrelator variability reliability was high, meaning that researcher one sitting in room one across the hall watching the video was pretty similar to researcher two sitting down the hall watching these 183 videos, which is good. It means that this discern scale is a pretty reliable scale to look at reliability. On a scale of one to five, with five being excellent, this is the most reliable video to be produced. The average score for board-certified dermatologist videos was 2.33. For non-dermatologist physicians, it was 2.13. For dermatology residents, it was 1.89. For uh, cosmetic formulators and non-physicians, it was 1.91. For patients, it was 1.40. And for barber and hairstylists, it was 1.38. So highest with board-certified dermatologists and lowest with hairstylists. Is it good news? Well, as I was reading this article, I thought, well, lots of videos being produced. It seems that at least many of them aren't breaking evidence-based guidelines. But overall, the news isn't good. The authors point out, that, point out to us that these scores are pretty low that if you want reliable, reliable videos being produced on TikTok, you'd love to have discern scores of 5. And here the highest is 2.33 produced by dermatologists. And you go all the way down to 1.38 by hairstylists and barbers. So these scores are low. And in the world of evaluating discern scores, scores less than 2.5 are considered poor. And a score 1.8 or less is considered very poor. And a score of 4.2 or, or 5, up to 5, is considered excellent. We are nowhere near 4.2 to 5 in this study. And so most of these videos are poor in terms of the quality of the medical information that's being put out there on TikTok. And so overall, the authors of this very nice study teach us that the current quality of medical information on TikTok is not ideal for patient education. And they point out that, that a significant amount of the content is for self-promotion. And so I think this is a really nice study. We are seeing a lot more studies coming out looking at what is being produced on social media, how reliable is it, and uh, there's even now computer artificial intelligence ways of assessing this massive amount of information. 
And I think we're going to be seeing more of these types of studies in the future. And I think it's really important that we continue to evaluate the quality of medical information. We often look for resources online to give to our patients. Patients want to know more about certain diseases, certain conditions. Is there a video we can send them to? Is there some way we can give them helpful resources? And I think it's really important to know the, the reliability of the information that we are directing patients to. So as of February 2022, TikTok is not the way to go. TikTok changes by the second. So we do not know if TikTok in October 2022 is any different than February 2022 in the reliability of information. One would presume not. But I think it's important over time to reevaluate this. Does does things change over time? But I think that's really important to be aware of. In some ways, this study doesn't come as any surprise. Patients bring in printout after printout after printout and binder of information on the internet relating to various aspects of hair loss. It's often not accurate. And so I think that's a helpful study that reminds us to be careful. We move on now to a very nice study of sebaceous gland atrophy and seborrheic dermatitis. This study um, is a very nice study because it's a new study and somewhat of a paradigm shift. And so when you have studies that kind of cause us to sit back and scratch our head and say, really? Then you may be dealing with one of these studies that's a paradigm shift. And this is a paradigm shift. And the thing about the world of hair loss research is that when you have a really good study and it's small, but you know you're on to something and you know you're probably right on, but you really want to respect the fact that it's small and you don't want everybody jumping on you that it's such a small study and it's flawed this way, flawed that way. What do you do? Well, you put a colon or a semicolon after your study title and you put a pilot study. And that's a respectful way of saying, hey, it's a small study, but we're on to something good. And this is one of these studies that is a small study, but they're on to something good. And I really like these studies. We, re we reviewed one of Dr. Goldberg's studies last week with the declining age of frontal fibrosing alopecia. She taught us that the youngest age of patients in her clinic is decreasing over time in FFA. Here's another one of Dr. Goldberg's nice studies looking at sebaceous gland atrophy. Potentially a paradigm shift in the way we think. So let's dive in. So the authors set out to determine if biopsies of sebaceous, of seborrheic dermatitis, which is a cousin of dandruff, shows atrophy of sebaceous glands. Do the sebaceous glands or these oil glands shrink in size in seborrheic dermatitis? The answer is probably. And the reason this is such a surprise is because the, the basic tenant or paradigm has been that when you see atrophy of sebaceous glands, not complete loss, as you see in scarring alopecia, but atrophy, the thing that many pathologists think about in the right setting is, hey, this might be psoriasis. And a lot of attention has been focused on sebaceous gland atrophy in psoriasis. And when you have a patient with hair loss who has sebaceous gland atrophy, it's often thought that this could be 
psoriatic alopecia. And so a lot of attention is focused on psoriasis, psoriasis, psoriasis with sebaceous gland atrophy. In many of the challenging cases that I send into my pathology team, uh, you know, the pathologist will call me or write in their report, this is a pretty tough case, Jeff, but we see sebaceous gland atrophy. There's no evidence of scarring alopecia, but there's evidence of sebaceous gland atrophy here. And, you know, we see sebaceous gland atrophy in psoriasis. Are you thinking about psoriatic alopecia? And usually when I get that report back, I think, oh, wow, you're right. I mean, sebaceous gland atrophy, as soon as you see sebaceous gland atrophy, you should be tagging on the word psoriatic alopecia. It might be psoriasis. That's the current way we think. What Dr. Goldberg's study now teaches us is, uh uh-uh that maybe we have to tag on seborrheic dermatitis as well. And so sebaceous gland atrophy has traditionally been associated with psoriasis. It's not the only thing we see sebaceous gland atrophy in some cases of FFA. We see sebaceous gland loss in scarring alopecia, but this, this atrophy in the right setting is associated with psoriasis in many cases. And it was Dr. David Headington in 1989 that got all of this rolling with a study in the Archives of Dermatology titled A Morphometric and Histologic Study in the Scalp of Psoriasis, Paradoxical Sebaceous Gland Atrophy and Decreased Hair Shaft Diameters Without Alopecia. And that was a nice study in 1989 telling us that even without hair loss, some patients with psoriasis can have this sebaceous gland atrophy or this decrease in size of the sebaceous glands. And so Negrani and Goldberg published this study looking at biopsies of seborrheic dermatitis from the clinic. Sebaceous glands were considered immature if there was a decrease in their size as well as a decrease in the central lipidized sebocytes. They measured the maximum width of the sebaceous gland in a vertically cut section and the normal size of the sebaceous gland and other biopsies were used as controls. What did they find? Well, they found that sebaceous gland lobules were smaller and narrower in five of the six cases of seborrheic dermatitis they looked at. And immature sebaceous glands denoting atrophy were seen in four of the six cases. And so they looked at six cases. One had a largest lobule of 0.2 millimeters, the other 0.2 millimeters, the third case 0.1 millimeters, the fourth case 0.03 millimeters, the fifth case 0.2, the sixth case 0.38. And so the average diameter here of the largest was 0.185. And when you look at the average of the largest sebaceous gland lobule in controls, it was 0.297 millimeters. So there's a decrease in the size of sebaceous gland lobules in seborrheic dermatitis. And so the main conclusion of this study, albeit small, was a wake-up call for us all and pathologists that, you know, maybe, just maybe, thinking that sebaceous gland atrophy is, is suggestive of psoriasis is not the right way for us all to be thinking then maybe it's found in seborrheic dermatitis too. And respectfully, uh, it's a small study, so the title of the study is a 
pilot study. And so what a pilot study means is, hello everybody else, come on board and do more studies to figure out if you agree with me or not. And um, that's just a respectful way of saying, this looks pretty important. And it is important because this is a paradigm shift in the way we think about sebaceous gland atrophy. This is an important study to me because a lot of the biopsies that I get back are from cases where the reason I'm biopsying it is because I don't know what it is with great certainty. I've examined the patient with trichoscopy. I've examined the patient clinically. I've got the whole story from A to Z, A to Z, depending on what country you live in. But I don't know what it is. And I may have spent five, ten minutes with my trichoscope on the scalp. I do not know what this is. And then we get these biopsies back saying, it's not a scarring alopecia, Jeff, but there's sebaceous gland atrophy. And usually with these cases, as I mentioned, the pathologist says, you know what, probably psoriasis of some sort, some variant of psoriasis. But what this tells us is, mm, sebaceous gland atrophy is is probably a little wider differential than that, and we have to include seborrheic dermatitis. <clears throat> Why does sebaceous gland atrophy occur in seborrheic dermatitis? If indeed it does, we don't know. And the answer is always given in these inflammatory scalp conditions is that there's this milieu of cytokines and chemokines that gets put out into the skin and into the dermis and into the epidermis that affects uh, all of these things, and perhaps interleukins, TNF-alpha, tumor necrosis factor, uh, interferons are responsible for the sebaceous gland atrophy. The reality is we don't know. Certainly psoriasis and seborrheic dermatitis are close cousins. They are not distant friends, they are close cousins, and sometimes a person can have a red, itchy, inflamed scalp that's scaly, and it is so close to psoriasis and seborrheic dermatitis that you can't really say it's psoriasis, you can't really say it's seborrheic dermatitis, and so you say it's sebo-psoriasis. And so there's this entity sebo-psoriasis, which just reminds us that psoriasis and seborrheic dermatitis are pretty closely related. So in some ways, it doesn't come as a surprise that sebaceous gland atrophy may be a part of some cases of seborrheic dermatitis. So we move on now to another very, very nice study published in JAD International in August titled Supplementation and Hair Growth, a retrospective chart review of patients with alopecia and laboratory abnormalities. A really nice study by Klein and colleagues from NYU. I really, really like this study because it addresses a subject that is challenging to address and I loved this study. So, hair loss can be associated with many underlying abnormalities. Patients can have abnormalities in iron levels, zinc levels, vitamin D levels. And so a patient can come into clinic and be diagnosed with androgenetic hair loss and you realize they also have a bit low iron. They can come into clinic and be diagnosed with alopecia areata and you see that well, your zinc is a little bit low, your vitamin D is a little bit low. And it's not clear if supplementation really makes a big difference. The hair loss world and, and many, many patients really do have the view that of course it makes a difference. 
If I have androgenetic hair loss and my iron is low, well, I'm going to take iron. I'm going to take a lot of iron and that'll help my hair. If you have low vitamin D, many patients are of the opinion of, this is fantastic. We've, we found I have low vitamin D. I just got to take low, vi I just got to take vitamin D supplements and I'll improve my hair. And I can also treat the androgenetic hair loss, but I'm so glad we identified the low vitamin D because if I take vitamin D supplements, I'm going to improve my hair. The reality is, is that that is sort of a myth. That there's not a lot of good data that patients with borderline vitamin D levels or borderline ferritin levels or borderline zinc levels really improve their hair all that much with supplementation. Now, the supplement industry is a multi-million or billion dollar industry in, in the health world. And so we certainly are driven to believe that, of course, if you fix these levels, it's going to improve the hair. The reality is, is that, no, there's not much data to support that. And there's really not much data in wonderful studies in the iron literature to suggest that if you have a ferritin of... 29, 35, 55, that you have to get your ferritin to 75 or you're never going to improve your hair. There's absolutely no evidence for that. But there's not a day that goes by that a patient doesn't come in and say, my ferritin is 54. I was told by someone else that it has to be 75, so I'm still supplementing. I'm as constipated as anything, but I am driven to get my ferritin to 75. There's not a lot of evidence for that. It may be relevant to a very small percentage of patients, yes, but not for most. And we can talk about that at some point in the future. There's several articles on Donovan Medical that I've talked about, the fact or fiction of ferritin. If you have a ferritin of two, Yes, you better get your iron up or your hair is going to be negatively um, uh, suffering on account of that ferritin of 2. But for most patients with a ferritin of 28, iron supplementation is going to not do anything. So here we have a study which touches on this subject, which is difficult to study, but they do a really nice job diving in to this issue. So it's a retrospective analysis of 138 patients with non-scarring alopecia at NYU looked at between January 2008 and October 2021. Patients came into clinic. They had trichoscopic measurements. How much hair loss do you have? What's the average density on your scalp at certain locations? What's the average caliber of your hairs? How thin or thick are they? They had blood tests. And then they came back again to have those trichoscopic measurements done again. And the question was, if you come in with a certain density and you have some sort of abnormality in zinc or iron or vitamin D and you go ahead and fix your zinc or vitamin D, or iron, do you get an improvement in your hair density or caliber? So there was 138 patients, 80% were female. The most common diagnoses were androgenetic hair loss. About 85% of patients had androgenetic hair loss. 13% had telogen effluvium, and about 2% had alopecia areata. Some had a mix of conditions, 
But the really important thing in this study is that most patients had androgenetic hair loss. At the initial visit, 70 patients had lab abnormalities, 28% had low iron, as measured by ferritin, a quarter of patients had low vitamin D, 4.3% had abnormal thyroid stimulating hormone, and 3% had low zinc. 52 patients received supplementation, and 17 patients normalized their levels at follow-up. So not everyone corrected their abnormalities, and not everyone decided to correct their abnormalities, and not everyone actually was able to correct their abnormalities. But what was the key result? Well, the key result here is that patients that were deficient in some sort of lab test and underwent supplementation and later achieved a normal blood test result finally did not show any statistically significant difference in hair density or hair caliber compared to patients that were deficient and didn't bother using any sort of supplement. And patients who were deficient and used a supplement but didn't actually get a normal level, they were still low, also didn't have any difference in their hair density or hair caliber compared to patients that were deficient and didn't use supplements. So overall, the authors concluded that these results fail to demonstrate any statistically significant association between supplementation and hair growth. These are challenging studies. I'm sure this, this study is going to have letters to the editor in response to it, rebuttals. Did you account for this? Did you account for this? Absolutely. Uh, maybe the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast will encourage people to write into this journal. This study has its limitations, absolutely, but the key point here is that supplementation doesn't make a huge difference for most patients with at least androgenetic hair loss, because that's what most patients have here. The study doesn't really say that patients with ferritins of two that supplement with iron are not going to have a benefit by supplementing with iron. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that patients with inflammatory bowel disease or bowel resection and a ferritin of of two and a zinc level that is extremely low aren't going to benefit their hair with supplementation. No. It says in the average clinic that patients with these typical abnormalities really don't benefit their density or hair caliber by popping iron pills, zinc pills, and uh, vitamin D. So I think that's really, really important. It's controversial. This is undoubtedly going to generate a lot of controversy by people that care to read the study in detail. Here are the main conclusions from the authors and, and from my opinion as well. And I've summarized some of these views in a more lay description because I think that's helpful here. Number one, if you think that a patient with androgenetic hair loss and low iron or low vitamin D is going to get an improvement by supplementing the iron or the vitamin D, you're probably going to be wrong. You're probably going to be wrong a lot more than you're going to be right. If I see a patient with androgenetic hair loss and a ferritin of two, okay, maybe they'll improve their hair with supplementation. But if I see a patient with androgenetic hair loss and they have a ferritin of 24, which is pretty common, it's pretty unlikely that a patient's going to get an improvement in their hair by supplementing iron. I'm going to sleep better at night knowing that they're taking iron 
I have this magic cut off in my mind that it's got to get to 40. It's got to get to 40. Some clinicians have this magic cut off, got to get to 70, got to get to 70. But there's no evidence to support that. We all have to have a cutoff. We all have to feel good that what we're recommending is based on science, based on... But the reality is, is there's no good evidence for that. And if you see patients with vitamin D levels that are borderline, yes, we want to tell patients to supplement if the vitamin D is low because we're not confident in these other areas of medicine. You know, I don't think this vitamin D supplementation is going to do much for your hair. But gee, maybe it'll help do something for your bones. And gee, maybe, just maybe, all this data in the world on vitamin D and cancer is relevant, even though it's extremely controversial. So maybe by bringing your vitamin D levels up, we're, we're doing something good to prevent some kind of cancer. Maybe we're preventing neurological disease, multiple sclerosis, who knows? The data on vitamin D in the medical literature is all over the place. It's challenging to interpret. One day you have study come out, studies come out that say, gee, vitamin D helps prevent all of these diseases. And the next day you have a study coming out that debunks it all and says vitamin D does absolutely nothing. So these studies are challenging. They absolutely are. But I think in the hair loss world, we really have to be careful by thinking that our vitamin D supplementation fixes most of our hair issues, that our iron supplementation fixes our hair issues, that the zinc issue fixes the hair issues. Probably doesn't. This study here is on the side of suggesting probably doesn't. These are challenging studies to do, so I commend the authors for diving in and trying to rigorously apply statistical methods to look at, at these questions. These are challenging to do. They're not easy to do. So anytime you dive in to change a widely held view, you're going to get controversy. You're going to get debate. Debate's healthy. But I look forward to seeing the letters to the editors back about this study. I'll enjoy reading them. All these kind of good studies that are controversial really generate these kind of letters to the editor. Stay tuned. So focusing on supplements, 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 and androgenetic hair loss, probably not going to do much for most patients. And repeating blood tests over and over and over to see if they've reached their magic level is probably not useful. It's probably not cost-effective, but it's probably not useful for most patients with borderline levels. So if a patient has a ferritin of 38, you got to get to 40. Let's repeat your ferritin in six months. See if you're at 40. We do it because we feel better. Our patients feel better. We sleep better knowing that, yes, we achieved a ferritin of 40. It's probably useless. Thanks to the authors for this great study. I think this adds to our literature of what these supplements mean for patients with hair loss. And we need good studies like this. The final study I'd like to review with you today is a very important study published in the JNCI, the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, October 2022, titled Use of Hair Straighteners and Other Hair Products and Incident Uterine Cancer. It's a very important study which teaches us that the use of hair straighteners increases an individual's risk for uterine cancer, which includes endometrial cancer and uterine sarcoma. 
the more a patient uses hair straighteners, the greater they increase their risk of uterine cancer. So this is a, a study looking at hair products and uh, uterine cancer risk. It has been suggested in previous studies, including previous studies by these authors, that hair straighteners may be in associated with uh, an increased risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer. And here they address the relationship between the use of these hair products and uterine cancer. So hair products may contain hazardous chemicals that are known as endocrine disruptors. And many chemicals in our environment, we wonder about certain ones because of their ability to disrupt the endocrine system in the body and to mimic hormones and to disrupt hormone signaling. And we call these endocrine disruptors. And so previous studies have, been, have found that hair products of certain kinds are associated with an increased risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer. We won't go into all the, the studies today. But I think this is a field that is so incredibly neglected and so incredibly important. There is good evidence in studies in the medical literature dating back 10, 15, 20 years that many of the products that we put on our scalp increase our risk to develop cancer. And that includes hair dyes, that includes other products, hair straighteners. And uh, these studies are challenging because these cosmetic products are regulated by so many different levels and so differently in different countries and different cutoffs and thresholds and opinions differ. And not every dermatologist and not every person who serves on government regulatory bodies around the world shares the views of, of all of this data and what it means. And so we rely on ongoing study and ongoing publication and ongoing physician groups and patient groups and cancer groups and other disease groups to raise issue with these products if they feel that the risk is significant. And so here we have a study looking at hair products and uterine cancer. And so the authors previously showed that hair straighteners were associated with breast and ovarian cancer. The relationship to uterine cancer had not been studied and so they set out to examine the association between hair products and uterine cancer in 33,947 patients aged 35 to 74. Patients completed various questionnaires. How often do you use hair dyes? How often do you use hair straighteners? How often do you use permanents or body waves, hair waves? Patients were followed on an average 10.9 years and there was 378 uterine cancers that were identified in that group of 33,000 patients. Patients who reported using hair straighteners in the last 12 months had a 1.8-fold increased risk of uterine cancer, which generally mostly comprises endometrial cancer. Patients that used more hair straighteners more than four times in the last 12 months had a 2.55-fold increased risk of uterine cancer, even greater. There didn't seem to be a relationship in this study with the use of hair dyes or permanents or waves with uterine cancer, nor was there an association with semi-permanent or permanent dyes, bleaching, or highlights. But there was this association with hair straighteners 
and uterine cancer. So this is a, this is a nice study. It's a large study, 33,000 patients, well conducted, has a racially and ethnically diverse population, many patients, African-American, black patients. And so I think that's really important because we need those, that type of diversity when we think about the impact of hair straighteners and relaxers and hair dyes. I think that's really important. It allows us to make slightly more broad conclusions. So the authors here remind us that uterine cancer is one of the most common gynecologic cancers and it's on the increase. The incidence and mortality has increased in the U.S. in the last two decades, and there's now about 65,000 new cases and 12,550 deaths expected in the year 2020. Uterine cancer has two types. Mainly, there's endometrial cancer, which is the main type of uterine cancer, and then uterine sarcoma, which is more rare. And it is well known that estrogen and estrogen signaling contributes to a significant degree to uterine cancer. We know that women who use high, high doses of estrogen without progesterone around have an increased risk for endometrial cancer. And that's why when women with a uterus are given estrogen, they're also given progesterone. So that's why we don't give women hormone replacement with just estrogen. We usually give progesterone around because progesterone protects the uterus lining and decreases the risk of uterine cancer. And so whenever there are these agents, these chemical agents, or these products that increase the risk of uterine cancer, we often think that they must be impacting estrogen signaling. There could be other mechanisms as well, but because of the well-established relationship between estrogen signaling and uterine cancer, we think that's a very important mechanism. And we think that many of these hair products act as endocrine-disrupting chemicals, EDCs. And you'll hear that a lot in the oncology world, that certain products and chemicals and, and, and other agents in our environment that we worry about in the food we eat, in the containers that we put our food in, in the things that we breathe in, we often worry about their ability to act as endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And so there is an association with breast cancer and ovarian cancer with some of these hair products. What exactly is in these that are causing cancer? We don't know. It's been speculated that perhaps it's parabens, perhaps it's phthalates, perhaps it's formaldehydes, perhaps it's other organic compounds. We know that there's an increased risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer in some of these studies with hair straighteners, and this study adds uterine cancer as well. And so there's pretty solid evidence that hair straighteners disrupt uh, these hormone-dependent signaling in some way that increases the risk that a female will develop these cancers. It's still a small risk in some cases, but it's an increased risk. This study didn't set out to look at the brands that patients received. What was the brand of hair straightener that you used? So we don't know. So we don't really fully understand the exact products. This was a racially and ethnically diverse population. There was not an increased risk or a different risk in black patients compared to Caucasian individuals, but there was an increased risk. It just it wasn't higher in black patients. This is such an important subject, and the authors point this out as well, and that is that ongoing studies and good studies are needed to, to evaluate whether hair straighteners 
in black patients really contribute a different risk. Because many black patients are using hair straighteners more frequently, uh, higher levels, and uh, straightening their hair differently than Caucasian individuals. So this is such an important subject. These hair straighteners may have risk, and it's up to us now as a society to evaluate what this all means and allow experts to go to it to give recommendations to society as this evidence accumulates. So that's it for this week. I want to thank you for joining me for episode three, season three of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. We talked about resilience and alopecia areata, resilience, this ability to bounce back from stressful life situations. The stressful life situation may still be there, but patients who are resilient or learn resilience cope better and adapt to that really challenging situation and have better quality of life. And we can teach resilience, and that's what's important here. We talked about repigmentation of hair as a sign of lentigo maligna. Seeing pigmentation come back is not always a good thing. In some cases, if it's a focal patch happening in gray hair, it may be a sign of lentigo maligna. We talked about the reliability or perhaps unreliability of videos produced on TikTok. And even though videos produced by dermatologists were slightly more reliable than videos produced by other groups, they still had pretty low reliability. And I think that really requires us to think carefully about how we use various social media platforms to get our information, but also how we can improve the information that is on these platforms. We shouldn't really look necessarily to say that, you know, don't go to TikTok to get your information on hair loss. I think we need to say that the information on TikTok right now is not very accurate. But with one billion users, what a wonderful way to get good information onto TikTok. And so I think the strategy has to also be developing new ways to get more accurate information onto TikTok to dilute the misinformation. What a wonderful resource we have to communicate with patients and I don't think that should be lost. A paradigm shift potentially reported by Dr. Goldberg with sebaceous gland atrophy occurring in patients with seborrheic dermatitis. I think this is really important and our biopsies coming back now with sebaceous gland atrophy. We mustn't jump to the conclusion that it could be psoriatic alopecia. It may be seborrheic dermatitis as well. A nice study, a brave study published by the NYU group looking at hair loss supplements and the fact that it doesn't seem these hair loss supplements do much in most patients, at least in a study comprising mostly patients with androgenetic hair loss. I think it's a really valuable study. I'm looking forward to the letters to the editor that come flying in with this study. It's a valuable study. It's a study that challenges a lot of myths and a lot of paradigms that exist in the hair loss world that if you have hair loss, you better supplement, supplement, supplement. You know, it's not uncommon for patients to come in on three, five, 10, 15 supplements. Some patients are using supplements for other reasons, cardiovascular health, cholesterol, brain health, energy. But when they're coming in with that use of supplements for hair loss, I think we have to really look into the literature on what the literature teaches us. And the literature teaches us that it probably doesn't do much in most situations. Of course, when things are very, very low and they're on the other side of the spectrum, that A, maybe they do something, but in most cases, probably not. 
And then we looked at a very valuable study published in the JNCI looking at the risk of uterine cancer with hair straighteners and talked about the fact that other studies support the use of the risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer with hair straighteners as well. I want to thank you again for joining me today. Next week we're back for the first Monday of the month of November and the first Monday of the month is dedicated to androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. So we'll be talking about a lot of wonderful studies from the past few months in androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. Thanks again for joining me. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast.